Uh, you guys are super welcome at church this morning. If you're new, please do come say hello to us afterwards. We'd love to get to know you, see if we can connect you into the life of what's going on around the church at the minute. There's lots of, of ways. Obviously, we've been talking about family hangouts, men's ministry. Girls' night was just in the week past. Um, and so there's lots of ways that you can connect in with us. We'd love to get to know you. and We'd love to try and, uh, and help you find your place uh, in the church in this moment in time. So today, we are continuing on in our series in the Beatitudes. We've been in over the last uh, four or so weeks, and uh, we've been thinking about those whom Jesus calls blessed, okay? So blessed were the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those are the four that we've got through uh, up until now. And so this morning, this is what we're going to read. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Uh, I found out uh, that I was going to become a dad in March 2016. And what followed was about nine months of furiously trying to get ready for the storm which was about to engulf my life, okay? So I went to all the appointments with joy, right? I was, I was that dad that was like, no, if there's appointments, I'm going. We did the antenatal classes together. Uh, I got far too stressed and over-researched about what pram we were going to buy or, as it's actually known, guys, travel system, okay? What travel system we were going to spend far too much money on. I decorated rooms, bought baby furniture. We shortlisted names. And yes, in the end of the day, Stranger Things did have its part to play in my daughter's name, okay? I did all the preparation, right? All the preparation. And yet none of that, none of it, could in any way have prepared me for the moment that I actually became a dad. Like did everything, Everything I could have thrown myself into to get my head and my heart and my home ready for this baby that was coming. And, and yet, I could never have prepared myself for the moment that I actually became a dad. Joy had to go off um, with the medical team. So I was there in this delivery room at about four o'clock in the morning uh, with this tiny person with their head poking out the top of my t-shirt. I was wearing a t-shirt, her head like poking out the top, just wondering, just an all out wonder that I cannot believe that this has happened to me. Like I cannot believe that I, I get to be a dad. This moment, in a moment, I now was something that I was not before. There's like a moment, and in a moment, I became something that I was not before. And yet the reality for any of us that have walked through that, and there's a fair few dads in the room, you will know that you know absolutely nothing, right? In lots of ways, you become something, but at the same time, you know nothing, right? I'd never changed a baby's nappy in my life, right? I didn't know what colic was. I was about to find out what colic was, right? I didn't know anything, right? I didn't know anything. And so in the six years that have followed, I've realized that even, uh, even though I was a dad, I too was becoming a dad. Like that which I became in a moment, right? I've realized I also was becoming through doing it, right? I've become a dad the more I have to be a dad. And I say that because in the same way, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes of this beatitude, we are something before we begin to act as something. 
You notice from that beatitude, right, that it's, it's, a, it's, one of the, it's the one that's it's kind of a perfect beatitude in a sense. It resolves itself, right? The merciful will be given mercy, right? The other ones are, are different, aren't they? The, the, the things it says along the way. But this one, that which, you're, that which is called blessed is that which you will receive, right? It's this perfect kind of circle that goes round, isn't it, right? And Lloyd-Jones says that we are something before we begin to act as something. There is this sense that the first four Beatitudes, right, they kind of had this logic of spiritual progression through them, okay? The writer John Scott, he, John, John Stott, he frames it like this. He says, to begin with, we are to be poor in spirit, acknowledging our complete and utter spiritual bankruptcy before God. Next, we are to mourn over the cause of it, our sin, the corruption of the fallen nature, and the reign of sin and death in the world. Third, we are to be meek, humble, and gentle toward others, allowing our spiritual poverty to condition our behavior to them as well as to God. And fourth, we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for what is the use of confessing and lamenting our sin, of acknowledging the truth about ourselves to both God and others if we just leave it there? There is this sense of progressing through the first four Beatitudes that we've been spending our time in over the last four weeks to land in some ways to the next four. If the first four are shaped really or marked with the deep work of our attitude towards God, then the next four are more so marked with the deep work of our attitude towards others. It's almost like we have to progress through the first four so that we begin to act out the next four. And we start with mercy. We start with mercy. And traditionally, uh, in the early church, this charge uh, was viewed as what they called almsgiving, okay? Um, You'll have heard us talk about that or mention it at other times in other texts looking in the New Testament. Now, almsgiving was really the tradition of giving material and spiritual help for the poor. It was one of the three main core practices for mainline Jewish believers, okay? We mentioned that a number of weeks ago as we talked about prayer and fasting and almsgiving. Those were the three things, like everybody did it. If you were a mainline Jew, you did almsgiving giving, right? Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And in many ways to the early church, that's just how this call to mercy was received. They just saw it as that. Okay, right? That We've done that for years. This church is going to do the same, right? Almsgiving. Yet mercy had this broad spectrum of appearances throughout the Bible. So in the Old Testament, mercy typically it indicated a number of things. God's slowness to anger, for example, his graciousness, his forgiveness. You'll see that in passages like Exodus 33 or Psalm 51, right? You'll see these qualities. And it continues to develop in the New Testament, right? It doesn't just stop there. So in Matthew's gospel alone, the gospel that we're reading from today, he uses the word mercy next to acts of healing the blind in Matthew 9, driving out demons in Matthew 15, and forgiving debts in Matthew 18. So mercy was broad. If mercy was anything, it was broad, And so for much of our church history, the kind of evangelical church has described it or viewed it like this. Mercy is to give help to the wretched and to relieve the miserable. To give help to the wretched and to relieve the miserable. And obviously wrapped up in this one word, lots of big biblical themes come to mind, don't they? Things like grace, things like forgiveness, things like help which comes to us. They're all in play, but there's a little bit of a distinction, maybe particularly with grace, because very often we can think grace and mercy are pretty much the same things, but they're not. You see, grace comes to the undeserving. 
That's the thing we say so much, especially maybe when we approach Easter and we talk about the big kind of themes around the cross and and the resurrection. Grace comes to the undeserving, people totally undeserving of it. Grace comes to you. But mercy, in many ways, mercy comes to those deserving of judgment. Or you could say mercy comes to those who are miserable. Or mercy comes to those who are afflicted. And the reality in our lives is that to be a person of mercy is hard. Like it sounds nice, doesn't it? But it is hard. Like the coming together of those first four Beatitudes, our attitude towards God has been difficult, right? Somebody sent a prophetic word into the, into the team last week that we shared at the end of church, right? And that word said that each week has felt like layer after layer of ourselves being stripped back, and it's painful, right? That's what it's felt like. And now that character is being formed, it is to form how we are shaped towards others. Martin Luther called mercy, for example, following on from last Sunday. Righteousness, that righteousness, the kind of Sunni, that word that we talked about last week, righteousness in action. We are something before we begin to act as something. But just like my experience of being a dad, right, in the the sense of being something and yet having no idea how to be something, mercy will do exactly the same, right? We are to be merciful, but I have no idea how to be merciful. It's really hard. Like when you walk with people that are going through a really difficult time, right? You're, You're not equipped for that, right? You meet them, there is difficult stuff going on. You have no idea what you're doing. How on earth am I to be merciful to this person? Or when I need to forgive forgive deep hurt, somebody has wronged us, something has happened in our past or very recent life, and, and you have to forgive them, right? How on earth do I do that? That's hard. Or as we draw close to those on the fringes, how do we do that? It's hard. We are something, but then we are called to act as something, and it's hard. And yet Jesus says that's exactly who we are and exactly who we are becoming. So what's going on? Well, I just want to focus in on the two main parts of that beatitude today, okay? I want to focus first on uh, on being merciful and then on knowing mercy. And the first of those is to be merciful, to be merciful. Uh, About a week or so ago, Boris Johnson made his statement, his public statement, that he was withdrawing himself from the conservative leadership race, okay? And in that statement uh, and kind of the stuff that went around it, there was this whole kind of narrative that he was doing it because it was better for the nation if he pulled out, right? It would mean Rishi Sunak would get like a clear run at the post, okay? And it was better. It was in the nation's interests if I withdraw myself from this race. You know, how very selfless of him to do it, okay? Yet, here's the problem. If you read his public statement, number of times he mentions the national interests, one Number of times he mentions or talks about I, 21 times. There's only 289 words in the statement. 21 of them are I, 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 I. And the thing is that when it comes to mercy, so often we end up making it about us, don't we? Like when it comes to mercy, it's very easy to make it, make it about us. Look how gracious I am and how merciful and how good I am. I'm just a really good person for forgiving them, right? Like, you know, you make those things, those things public. We serve at that food bank because we think the experience might be good for us. We show up out of some sense of duty. We give in some ways to try and pay away the guilt that we feel. We, 
We act, the acts of mercy and sacrifice, somehow we make them about me. We make them about us. And here's the thing about the mercy that Jesus calls blessed. It can't be about me. And it can't be done at arm's length. It can't be about me. And it can't be done at arm's length. We can't pay it away. We can't just, you know, send it in an envelope and there's, that's me. I've been merciful this month. I'm great. That's me checked off. Jesus, tick. We can't do it at arm's length. One spiritual father described mercy as an outstretched hand. I love that. Mercy is an outstretched hand. Because, and that draws to mind lots of qualities in that one phrase, okay? An outstretched hand can mean lots of things. It can mean love. It can mean forgiveness. It can mean hospitality. But also it means that I decline to hurt you. I mean you no harm. That's very often if you approach a dog that you don't know. You know, you hold your arms, your hands open as you go towards it, right? You approach them so that they know. I mean you no harm. Or even I restrain my power over you. Around Easter time, um, we headed off to the North Coast. And uh, we were up there for about a week. And one of the days we went down to that little beach in O'Hara Drive in Port Stewart to collect kind of sea glass and shells and all that sort of stuff. Our two kids love doing that. And so we're down on the beach and Joy is with Levi, who like characteristically is trying to run headfirst into the ocean. I'm with Elle and we're kind of poking around looking for different bits of colored glass. And at that point, Elle begins to start throwing stones, okay? And the stones are kind of getting a little bit bigger and she's kind of launching these stones in the, in the water. And I, you know, being a responsible dad, firstly, I'm just impressed she can throw throw that far, right? So I'm like, well done it. Like that's, you got quite a good arm. So I'm like watching her throw these stones. And then she begins to throw them over the top of where Joy and Levi are, right? You can see where this is going. Somebody is literally at this moment going, because that is where it's going, right? She starts throwing these stones over the top of the two of them. And the words are coming out of my mouth. L, don't throw stones over the top. And as it happens in slow motion, right? I watch the stone leave L's hand and go like a laser-guided missile straight into Joy's face, right? I shout, Joy turns around, the stone smacks her, right? Like right in the nose, right? So now I'm literally running, like I'm running towards Joy, whose face is obviously a bit of a mess. There is like blood everywhere, right? Joy is knocked for six and sort of a bit staggering around the place because she's been whacked. Elle is now screaming hysterically and running in one direction. Levi is continuing to try and run into the ocean, right? And I'm like, what do I do, right? So I eventually get to Joy. Joy, like, are you okay? Joy's kind of come to. She's fine. I've got Levi, and I bring Elle over, okay? And in the middle of it all, my enduring memory of that moment will be Joy getting down on one knee and opening up her arms to Elle and telling her, it's okay. It's okay. And I stretched hand. It's okay. I love you. I accept you. I welcome you. I mean you no harm. It's okay. Elle's reaction, by the way, Joy's face was covered in blood, was to literally run at 100 miles an hour the other way, right? Actually running, going, I don't want my mom to die. That is truthfully what happened, right? In the opposite direction, okay? But mercy is an outstretched arm. It can't be done at a distance. And it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the one who needs to be met with mercy. Down on one knee. Face covered in blood. It's okay. Come close. And that's what mercy looks like. 
Love, forgiveness, acceptance, no intention to harm. I just want to draw you close. And when we take a broad look at the Bible, okay, and we try to get to the heart of what this mercy is that Jesus calls blessed, actually we find there are three main components, okay? They're kind of three parts. Mercy actually looks like three things, okay? And those three things are compassion, forgiveness, and welcome. Mercy's not simple in many ways. There are three parts to it, and they are compassion, forgiveness, and welcome. And so first of all, when we think about compassion, okay, because that's one way that, mer- that mercy works in our lives and in the world. The writer Mark Allen Pyle, he said this, the merciful favor, the removal of everything that prevents life from being as God intends, poverty, ostracism, hunger, disease, demons, and deaths. That sounds like compassion, doesn't it? You want a compassion ministry at church. We have a compassion team. And in many ways, that's what they try to deliver. People that work in the world of compassion. That's how broadly we would describe it. Those who seek to remove everything that prevents life from being as God intends. That's compassion. And this is a broad understanding of it, isn't it? Blessed are those who rush out to meet the physical, social, and spiritual hurts, longings, and needs of this world. And mercy looks like that. The last thing we are with our idea of compassion is narrow. We're broad, aren't we? And the picture of this is what we see so clearly in that really well-known parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's the picture, really, of mercy that looks like this. And if you don't know the parable of the Good Samaritan, there's, it's a story about a man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he's attacked, and he's beaten, he's robbed, and he's stripped, and he's just left for dead on the road. And the first person that walks by is a priest, right? So you think the priest is going to help him, but the priest crosses over onto the other side of the road and walks on. The next person who arrives is a Levite. Levites were really important in the Jewish faith. They had a rule for worship inside the temple. They had ceremonial acts they did. They were renowned for being holy type people. But what does the Levite do? He crosses over onto the other side of the road and he walks on. And the next person that arrives is a Samaritan. One who hated and were hated by Jewish people. The one person in this story that you think would or maybe even should cross onto the other side of the road and walk on, but yet that's not what he does. He helps. He gets down to begin to tend and care for this beaten and broken man. He picks him up. He, he pays for him to be looked after by an inn. And then Jesus finishes off that really, well, that really well-known parable like this in Luke 10. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Compassion is the first component of our mercy. You want to know what it looks like? It looks like compassion. But secondly, it looks like forgiveness. Mercy involves forgiveness. And I don't know about you, but as we walked through week two of Alpha the other week, those of us that are, that are in communities around the life of the church, and the topic was, why did Jesus die? The real moment for me in that talk and in the film series, if you've seen it, is the moment where it pivots out to, begins to, to begin to talking about forgiveness. And maybe even in particular, as Corrie ten Boom gives testimony of forgiving a guard who had savaged her and her sister during their time in the Ravensbrück concentration camp. Like, that is the moment. That is the moment. Because forgiveness is a place in life where we are perhaps never more like God. When we forgive. And mercy calls us to forgiveness again and again and again. 
If you want the kind of biblical sources for where you might find mercy looking like this, well, you could look at Genesis 50 and how Joseph deals with his brothers, you know, the ones that sold him into slavery. Or to use Jesus' words to think about the parable of the unmerciful debtor in Matthew 18. The story of how one man who owes a vast debt, a debt greater than he could ever repay, is forgiven by this king. And then that person immediately leaves the courts and he bumps into another servant who, who in fact owes him a very small debt. And he just wheels into him. He throws him into jail until he can repay this small sum of money that he is owed. And the king's response, this is it. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Mercy calls for forgiveness. Mercy calls for forgiveness. And finally, it calls us to welcome. Mercy calls us to welcome. And we get this window on what this kind of mercy really means in the calling of Matthew in Matthew chapter 9. It's the most beautiful picture of what welcome in this case really looks like. I'm going to read it to you. It's just a few verses from Matthew 9, verse 9 to 13. And this is what it says. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And there's lots going on in these verses, right? Lots and lots, which speak so profoundly to this idea of mercy. There's so much to be drawn into the wonder of how Jesus might call someone like this, that Jesus would choose someone like this, but also that Matthew would choose to follow him, right? This is a successful businessman in many ways. He lays everything down and he follows Jesus, right? We think people that are doing great in life, they don't often lay it all down to follow Jesus, but Matthew did. But Matthew did. And then after his choosing to follow him, we get to what is perhaps the most scandalous thing about Jesus. And when we think about him, there's lots that's scandalous, right? There's lots that scandalizes others, lots of it. Things that he teaches, for example, arriving in the synagogue on the Sabbath and announcing that he is Lord of the Sabbath, right? Like that, that is scandalous to the people of the time, right? There's lots about him, miracles that he does, things that he does while he's alive and conducting his ministry. But yet, perhaps the most scandalous of it all is who he chooses to spend his time with. Perhaps the most scandalous thing about Jesus is who he chooses to spend his time with. And he has form, okay? He does it again and again and again. It's not a once-off in Jesus' life. For example, like the woman at the well, she'd been caught in adultery, and yet there they were, right? Or the woman who arrives and washes his feet with her tears and dries it with his hair, right? Or Zacchaeus. And perhaps the most scandalous thing about it all was not just that he chose to spend time at them, but that he chose to sit at a table with them. It's who he's sitting at the table with. 
Because culturally, this was the most intimate act of hospitality, and here he offers it to a tax collector. Who you ate with said so very much about who you were. And here he is at a tax collector's table, seated around a table with the least and the worst. And the thing is, we need to know, tax collectors were the worst, right? They really were the worst. One commentator described how they were thought of as proverbially rich and fanatically hated, right? Everybody hated them, okay? And yet Jesus, he's totally at ease. He's totally at ease. He's completely at ease in a crowd like that. Probably deep in conversation, probably getting to know these people by name, probably listening to their stories and telling them his. Jesus loved being with people and they loved being with him. And mercy means radical welcome to the outsider. When I say welcome, I don't mean welcoming like your best friends to your house on Friday night, okay? That's not the sort of welcome we're talking about when we talk about mercy, right? That's just hanging out with your best friends on a Friday night. That's not radical welcome to the outsider. It means we have to get over our tendency to judge and our tendency to decide who is on the inside and who is on the outside. It means we need to get over our own sense of standing on our goodness, right? Like we're good people and these are good people, right? And begin to rely on the goodness of God. You know, one of the hardest things about leading a church is very often that I need to orient my life away from some of my best friends who actually go to this church in order to welcome people who are new or people that are struggling or people that are going through stuff in their lives, right? I actively need to like, I I mean, lots of my friends come to this church on a Sunday and basically every Sunday we send an apologetic message saying, sorry, I didn't even get to talk to you today. We were talking to all sorts of other people. My in people, the people I feel safest and most known around, I have to try and open up my life to others so that I might live mercifully towards them. The thing is, we all have categories of who is on the inside, don't we? We all do. It's not a bad thing. I'm not saying for one minute that it's bad to have people that you feel comfortable around, our people, people we feel we can be vulnerable around, people we feel we can have intimate relationship with. But the problem is that that immediately orientates us away from others and they find themselves on the outside of our lives, don't they? It's not so much that you put them there, it's just so much that you have people that are in and so they find themselves as out. And there are only two places that I can think of where people can be somewhere or belong somewhere for like 25 years and still be thought of as a blow-in, right? And that is Ireland and the church. And you're in both right now, right? Like I was doing a session with elders at one point when I worked for Alpha and I was talking to them a bit about it. And this elder was really quite vocal during the session about what they thought was good and bad about their church at the time. And whenever we broke for coffee, this other elder came up and said, I see him. He's only been here for 25 years. He's a blow in. And I'm like, like, where else does this happen, right? But it also happens, I have a friend that lives kind of in rural Northern Ireland, and he said, like, they've, they, they've, like, bought a house. The kids go to the primary school. Like, they're totally invested in the area. And yet, everybody from the area continues to treat them as blow-ins, right? We do this thing in Northern Ireland where it's like, if we haven't been here our whole lives, then you're a blow-in. You might never belong. And we all have insiders and outsiders. But here's the thing. 
Mercy, mercy calls out a radical welcome towards those that are on the outside. Whoever they are, for whatever reason, mercy calls us to radical welcome. We can't do that at arm's length. We can't pay it lip service. We can't pay it away. Jesus said, quoting the prophet Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, I don't want you to go through the motions. I don't want the appearance of mercy. I don't want the show. I don't want the box ticked. I want you to live out mercy. And the reality is, mercy needs something to happen at the heart. Something has to move you at the heart. Mercy requires us to get our heart involved. Compassion, forgiveness, and welcome, they all require the heart to be moved towards somebody else in order to do any of those things. But also they require us not to just stop at the heart. Mercy sets the heart to action. Mercy sets the heart to action. Here's the question. Does my life look like it is marked by compassion, forgiveness, and welcome? Does my life and your life, does it look like it's marked by compassion, forgiveness, and welcome? Because here's the thing. Sometimes I talk to people and they ask about how we'll go about our vision for Belfast. And you know what? It's not built on the back of my preaching or anybody else's preaching on a Sunday or our worship leaders and how great or bad they might be or great web resources or killer social media platforms. It's not built on any of that. Our strategy is you. Our strategy is you. It's how Jesus might work in you and through you. It's around tables and not courses or events or initiatives. It's believing that in how we open up our tables and our lives, how they might be marked by mercy, people might meet the compassion, forgiveness, and welcome they so desperately long for. And in that place, they might meet Jesus. You are the strategy. And compassion and forgiveness and welcome, and all of the things that we've been walking through that make up in many ways the character of the way of Jesus. That's our strategy. That's how we might see Belfast changed. And it starts with mercy. First, we're called to be merciful. But second, we need to know mercy ourselves. We need to know mercy. Shame is a very powerful thing. I was out at Tesco um, a number of weeks ago and I bumped into a girl that I knew from church and we met in the fruit aisle and um, she, the first thing that came out of her mouth whenever I said hello was, oh for flip's sake, would you look at me? I'm out with no makeup on or anything, right? First thing that came out of her mouth, did you look at me? I have no makeup on. And she's, you know, she's so embarrassed about this, right? Because of course your actual face is offensive, right? <laughs> of course it's not, right? But it's the power of shame, isn't it? I got no makeup on. Shame. But it's more than that, right? Somebody calls around to your house by surprise and the house is a mess, right? The kids have ransacked the place. And the first thing that will almost certainly come out of your mouth is, oh, my house is never like this, right? Or your kids, they have a tantrum in the middle of a public space. They make a scene. And the first thing that comes out of your mouth, you know, you say that thing a bit louder so everybody can hear it. And you say, oh, they're never like this. They're never like this at home. Stop that, you know. Shame. Shame. It is a powerful thing. And very often it calls us to going into full-blown cover-up mode, doesn't it? We make the excuses. We say, other, we say things for other people's benefit. 
We go into cover-up mode. Merriam-Webster describes shame as this, a painful emotion caused by consciousness of guilt, shortcoming, or impropriety. And at the heart of it, really, is this sense that we all feel in some ways that our life should be up here somewhere, shouldn't it? Like we should be living the high life all the time, like way up here. Our life should look like this. I'm this good, right? The Instagram life that you put out, that that's how good your life actually is, right? But then on the inside, we know that it's not. We know that it's not. The number of times I sit down for coffee with people from around this church and and what they've put out, what we see on the internet, like it looks great. You're having a blazing time. You've just been to Italy. You've just, you know, done whatever it is, right? Life looks great. And then we sit down and it's anxiety and it's worries about work and it's relationship woes and they're still making their way through grief and stuff that's going on in their lives. We feel our lives should be way up here. But the reality is they're down here somewhere. And the problem is that very often what rushes to fill that void, shame. Shame. Shame is very often what rushes to fill the gap between where we think our life should be and where our life actually is. And we need to understand the difference between guilt and shame as well, right? Because guilt is, when we fe- is what we feel about our actions, but shame is what we feel about ourselves. It goes for our identity, doesn't it? And yet one of the things we read in Scripture is how Jesus came not only to deal with our sin, but also our shame. 1 Peter 2 will say, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Here's what I want to say to you today. In the gap between where we feel we should be and where we are, what so easily fills the void is shame, but it doesn't have to be. It could be mercy. It could be mercy. If what you're here today is feeling shame about some aspect of your life, what you could be feeling and what you could be knowing today is mercy. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And the thing is, it's not some sort of do this, get that equation, right? Before you think it's just, oh, if I do one nice thing, then I'll get a whole bunch of mercy back, right? It doesn't work like that. It's not like that. It's more like this continuous flow from mercy to mercy. That we know mercy in our life. That mercy begins to work in us. That mercy begins to change us. And as it does, we begin to live out that mercy towards other people. Grace has done enough. Jesus did enough at the cross. Our salvation isn't dependent on anything we might do, including being merciful. But it's that Lloyd-Jones quote again. We are something before we begin to act as something. And we are to know mercy. We need to know mercy. And you need to know that it's here today. Mercy is here today. No matter the shame you feel, no matter the distance you feel, no matter what's going on in your life, mercy is here today. And we're back to Matthew's conversion again. And the reminder that these people whose lives and stories we come to get drawn into in the Bible, right? They were just people like us, right? Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was a tax collector. And the reality for a tax collector was that they were so deeply hated for two reasons. One, they worked for the Roman Empire, right? So that made you hated. And the second reason was they skimmed a profit off taxing ordinary people. So that made you hated. 
They were the most hated. They were the most on the outside. And the thing is that looking at them now, uh, with our kind of perspective of looking at them in 2022, we read about tax collectors and look at them like villains, right? Like, yeah, they're the bad guys. Nobody likes tax collectors, right? That's how we look at them. But what if we just started to try and see the world from Matthew's angle? Like sitting in this little booth in the heat of the day, every single day. Taking money from people who didn't want to give it. He could hardly be enjoying it, could he? They certainly weren't enjoying giving it. He knew he was hated. Have you ever been in that place where you are somewhere and you know that everyone there can't stand you? Imagine that being your life every single day. He knew he was hated. I mean, think like traffic warden, but even worse, right? Like, you know how you feel when you see a traffic warden. Oh, no, that guy, right? I don't know anything about that guy's story. He might be a thoroughly lovely guy. But the second I see the guy in the red and black uniform, I'm like, oh, that guy, right? If you're a traffic warden and you're here this morning, bless you in Jesus' name, okay? But it's like that, isn't it? It's like that. Or a dentist. There are a number of dentists here. And the second they say dentist, they tell me that everyone goes, oh, like doesn't even want to talk to them and like covers their mouth, you know, because they're ashamed. Just imagine that, right? And then I just imagine him kind of craning his neck out of that little booth in the heat of the day, kind of craning his neck to try and see. He's heard that Jesus is around, this person that everyone's talking about, the stuff that's going on all around him, kind of craning his neck, like, can I see him? Is there any chance I might get a glimpse of this Jesus that everyone is talking about? And then the next thing, Jesus is right there. He's right in front of his little booth. He's right there. And then he hears those words. Those words that would change his whole life. Follow me. Follow me. This was someone that was the furthest away from Jesus and the good news of the gospel. You couldn't be any more outsider than him. If you're sitting here today and you're thinking you're on the outside, you couldn't be any more on the outside than Matthew was. And yet Jesus comes to him with those two words. And in them, what he hears is compassion, forgiveness, and welcome. This was mercy like none he had ever known. None. The funny thing is that Matthew, who obviously wrote his own gospel, okay? Matthew would place this story of his own conversion in the middle of two full chapters of stories about healing in Matthew 8 and 9. It's kind of strange, isn't it, that a conversion would be right in the middle of story after story after story about miraculous healing. Why? Because for someone like a tax collector, this act of mercy, this coming to Jesus, would feel like the greatest healing of them all. God got his whole heart involved in this act of mercy. And what did he say? Jesus. God's act of mercy to Matthew and to us is Jesus. No matter how far away you might feel today, no matter how on the outside you might feel to all of what's going on in the room or going on in your friends' lives, no matter your past or your present, no matter what you did 10 years ago or what you did last night. Mercy is here today. And the greatest act of mercy you could ever know is found in Jesus. It's found in Jesus. What does God have to say to the challenges and the griefs and the pains and the suffering of your life? It's Jesus. 
What does he have to say to the sin and the failure of your life? It's Jesus. What does he have to say to how on the outside you feel? It's Jesus. And what would he say to you today? Follow me. Follow me. Just follow me. There's no need to crane your neck out of that little booth. There's no need to just hear stories about me. There's no, there's no need to anymore just hear that somewhere out there, there's a hope. Somewhere out there, there's a belonging. Somewhere out there, there's forgiveness. Somewhere out there, there's compassion. Somewhere out there, there's welcome. It's here. And his name is Jesus. And he would stretch out those same two words to you today if that's how you find yourself. Follow me. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases Romans 5. This is what he says. Christ arrives right on time to make this happen. He didn't and doesn't wait for us to get ready. He presented himself for the sacrificial death when we were far too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready. And even if we hadn't been so weak, we wouldn't have known what to do anyway. We can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for, and we can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice, but... God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatsoever to him. However you find yourself this morning, there is mercy. While you and I were a long way off, as far off as it's possible to be, he died for us. Mercy made a way for us. Mercy made a way for you and I. You know, there is only one class of people in the kingdom of heaven. There's lots of classes of people in this world, isn't there? The rich, the super rich, the billionaire, the Jeff Bezos, you know, whatever, right? There's lots of classes in this world. But in the kingdom of heaven, there's only one. And it's sinners, people who are broken. It's you and I. The saints that we read of, they're just like you and I. But they've encountered a mercy which changed everything. I often marvel, you know, at how for Matthew, he could use a pen, obviously, right? Totaling up his little sums, right? He could use a pen. He had to be able to use a pen to be able to write, to do his job. He knew how to use it for profit for most of his life. And then he met Jesus and God would use that, that same ability with a pen to write the gospel and draw me and you and millions of others into his story. Mercy did that. What might mercy do with us? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And you can find the mercy of Jesus here today. He is here. And you can meet him here.